Hello, curbsiders. Uh, If you hear a stampede, that is just my children running around the house. Pay no mind to that. This week, we have two very special bonus episodes, one you're about to hear and one will come out later this week. These are recaps, our daily recaps that we recorded live at SGIM with our Curbsiders crew and maybe a couple special guests. And uh, we also recorded three fully produced episodes that'll come out probably in June. And uh, we wanted to thank SGIM. We had a great time at the conference. So without further ado, here's our first recap episode from SGIM. Entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. But more than you, the statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible to screw up. We should only do our homework and let us know the Okay, Paul. I don't know about you, but I am. Uh, I am. I am tired. But uh, <laughs> I am gonna make. I'm gonna. I'm gonna be very enthusiastic about this intro. We are at SGIM right now. They set us up with a really nice little recording room here, and we we had a great show recap show today. Why don't you tell them a little bit about it, or maybe even just tell them what we do on the show? Sure. I mean, I can do all those things. I, listeners of the show know that I exist at a level of emotional exhaustion, so this is standard for me. <laughs> Uh, but this, so we are at um, SGIM 2019. We're doing a recap show for you this time around. We have the the great Abby Spencer. He'll be with us, and we're just going to go around the room and, and sort of talk about all the fantastic, both clinical updates and updates in medical education that we learned about, and actually even spend a little bit of time um, just talking about what SGIM means to to some of the members. Um, as a reminder, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We're doing this out of order. That brings you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, but this time, a little something extra. So for your enjoyment. Yes, and on the show you'll be hearing uh, a, a diverse group of voices. We have Justin Burke, Shreya Trevetti, Nora Toronto, Carolyn Chan, and I hope I'm not missing anybody else. Uh, Paul and myself and, and Abby Spencer. <laughs> I mean, afterthoughts, as always. And uh, it's a really great show, so we should just get right to it. We have to start with Abby. So Abby Spencer's here with us, like we talked about. Abby, so lovely to see you again. And before we started recording, you said all this pitch perfect stuff about how great this conference is and how happy you are to be at SGIM um, and how it fulfills you. And so I was wondering if you could say that exact same thing all over again now that we're recording, just so we can get a sense of, of how you're feeling about the conference. And and make sure it's exactly as Exactly good. the same. I'll know. <laughs> we um, don't want to put any pressure on you. <laughs> no pressure at all. Uh, well, first, thank you for the invitation. This is really exciting and an honor to uh, to be in the room where it happens, literally, and to uh, to have the uh, the stickers here to prove it. Uh, so I think what I was saying in the in the beginning was the question was what did I what did I take from the day and what did I get from the day, and what I was talking about was something that is so amazing to me about SGIM. I felt like today was the epitome of all that Society of General Medicine is to me and has been to me. That the day was comprised of meeting with a couple of my mentees uh, from across the country, meeting with my mentors who are across the country presenting workshops, going to workshops and learning from others, networking and helping bring trainees into that network and and then going and cheering on colleagues or trainees and seeing their workshops. And so it was just this beautiful combination of, of learning, of teaching, of becoming a better teacher and learner, of mentoring, of being mentored. And that 
all of the components of being a generalist and being a medical educator sort of came to life in one day in the same way that in clinic, you never know what's behind each door. And there's such a variety of the patients that we see and the things that we're able to do. Coming to a meeting like this, it's the same way where you're, it's, it's not just your own learning. It's facilitating the learning of others and our own growth so that we can continue to, you know, bring along our networks and, and the folks behind us as we continue to learn and grow too. So it's a very special meeting for me. It's such a professional home. And today was the epitome of that day. Well said. And I think that was exactly the same. That was going nicely done. <laughs> Paul, what do you think we should get into next? Uh, we have a lot to talk about. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and that was a great introduction by Abby, but she actually, you gave a workshop, or you helped present a workshop. I'm sure there were, there were co-presenters as well. I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that, and then maybe some of the other talks you had a chance to attend as well. We presented on the clinician educator's pen, how to write an impactful letter of recommendation, and it was a really fun workshop to put on. We had collaborators, both uh, junior faculty, senior faculty from Cleveland Clinic, as well as from University of Chicago. And we spoke about the importance and the impact of writing letters and what it means for getting our students onto their next steps, for our residents, for our fellows, and even at the faculty level. And yet the honesty and integrity that's involved in it as well and how to balance that desire and that need to advocate and to get our trainees to the best place that we can and also to be able to you know truly be the gatekeepers to society as well and be cognizant about what we're saying and the power of our words and there was a lot of you know hashtag words matter and so being able to think through different cases and and we went through different ranking words and had people talk about you know good actually means bad and so it is very good and now excellence neutral and outstanding is still good but a superb trumps it and so sort of the the different code words and then we talked about what do you say if you have nothing nice to say or if it's someone who is fine but they're not amazing and how do you speak to their strengths and how do you ask learners about what is it that you want me to highlight or to be very honest and upfront about here's the type of letter I can write for you. Here's the types of things I could say. Would you like me to do that? And so that we're able to, again, write the most powerful letters for the those who really truly are rising to the top and also be able to advocate for others as well in the words we use and the stories that we describe. So we just did a lot of practice of correcting letters and writing letters and choosing language and how to avoid also sort of condemning a trainee accidentally because you don't know the right words. And so yeah. I told the story of how, you know, when I was a fellow and we go on the wards, I had the student that was absolutely phenomenal. I'm sure I'll be working for her someday. Uh, and my letter of recommendation might have kept her out of residency because I just didn't know. A Abby, so I wanted to ask you just because we don't have time to go through all of it, but what is what is like the number one mistake people should avoid and then they can kind of see, you, maybe you can point them in a direction uh, to to find more specific more specific things, you know, if they want to read more on this. I would say the most important points are number one, avoid gender bias in letters. Um, so we know that often women are described more by their personality and their traits and men by their skills. And so you want to be careful about saying how, um, you know, Abby is very nurturing and kind and compassionate, and Matt is very skilled and effective and excelling in these competencies. So being very careful about the words that we choose and whether we're introducing bias and really talking about the facts and the skills and the abilities. Mm -hmm. And keep to your honesty and integrity. Nobody wins if you oversell or undersell. So be honest about whether or not you should be writing that letter and the best letter that you can do. 
And is there any like kiss of death coded language we should be avoiding? I mean, I know that's not supposed to exist anymore, but I think like solid at one point was like, oh, no, that's not that's not great. Where it, it seems like it should be kind of. Are there any other words we should be landmines we should try to sort of sidestep? Great question. So solid, good and very good are all fairly bad. And anything followed by when asked oh. or when prompted uh, usually does not uh, imply a positive and then if you think about the the rhyme scale often used at the medical student level, if somebody's a reporter, an interpreter, uh, um, a manager, an educator, if you're describing someone as an outstanding reporter, you're actually not giving a very kind thing. And so knowing those scales. Just sort of damning example. with vain praise along exactly. the lines of commenting on grooming or punctuality. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. It, that was another point, actually, that someone brought up. If you describe in the letter that they're doing what you would expect them to do, that doesn't belong in the letter. So if you say they showed up and they were prepared, that doesn't <laughs> right. that doesn't sell. Um, and if you say that everybody's in the top five percent, you've lost all of your uh, integrity and your letters won't mean anything anymore. Yeah. Okay. And then you also attended. I feel like you got in seventeen hours of conference in an eight hour day, so you attended some things too. So what else? I, what else did you pick up? From- uh, I did as well. So yeah, in addition to meeting with various mentees and mentors, uh, I attended uh, the workshop on point of care professionalism. And so what do you do when you uh, observe or witness an unprofessional or lapse in professionalism by a trainee? And how do you correct it in the moment and also have empathy for both the resident or the trainee and whoever was on the other end of the unprofessional behavior? And so uh, it was really interesting to talk through the cases and always start with trying to understand where the resident was coming from and just have the empathy for how did it come to the situation that whatever, whether it was they yelled at a nurse or they disparaged a patient or they cut and paste. I think there was one example of about uh, a patient who was quadriplegic and they put in their note, you know, gate normal. And so things that were fairly, you know, egregious, unprofessional, and yet how did we get here? Um, and, and talking again about the empathy and the, I think you guys, you referred to it as the highest positive regard for that trainee and sort of really owning the system that we've set our trainees up for and saying, you know, I'm so sorry, you've probably seen us do that. And, you know, there's no one among us who hasn't had a lapse in professionalism before. Let's talk about how we want this to go next time and what we can learn from this moment and how so to sort of set aside the shame, keep empathy and correct it and call it out because there's also harm when you don't call out these lapses and you see people and then it, it starts to become the, the hidden curriculum and it gets repeated. And so you want to be empathic. You want to call it out and to really practice those skills. Any Abby, any other favorite like lessons learned from today or uh, we, we have a ton of other stuff and we want your comments on, on sort of the, the other uh, pearls we're going to be talking about as well. But Sure. The other one I, I went to was on addressing sexual harassment in the Me Too movement among trainees and what to do when a trainee either experiences it from another trainee, from a faculty, or from a patient. And we actually went through case scenarios. And what I loved about it was they pushed us to actually use the words of how we'd respond. So we wouldn't be able to say, well, I would do this, or I might say this. We had to actually say it as if we were speaking to the patient or to the trainee. And it really put you in that moment of how hard it is to say those words and we felt a little bit easier when you're doing it as a bystander so that reminder of how can we all uh, speak up for each other and for our trainees and then also how can we get empowered and practice using the words for ourselves as well and were you given a specific script to use like were there words given as example or did you have to sort of generate that on your own as well 
Great question. So there was a set of cases and then there were, it was broken up by, was it witnessed from a patient? Was it experienced by a patient in different categories? And then there were some quotes there. So we could look at it and either choose something that was there or kind of create your own situation or your own answer. And so for those who would, would would respond with humor, a lot of people came up with their own words of how they would utilize the humor, but other others looked at the words and said, you know, let's keep our focus on the abdominal exam, or let's get back to talking about your diabetes, or that's not appropriate, or you're too close to me, I'm uncomfortable. So some was the actual words, and then others were sort of prompts to get you to speak your own voice. Who should we go to first, Paul, here? Let's, let's hear from Nora. Hello. <laughs> Strong work so far. You're killing me. <laughs> Nora Toronto, DC native, and uh, she is, where are you going next year, Nora? Uh, the Brigham. I use Chicago for a couple more weeks. All right. Chief, chief medical resident for a couple more, <laughs> or chief medical student for a couple more weeks. Uh, so what, what were your favorite pearls from today, Nora? Um, I had a couple. I got to attend a bunch of different wonderful clinical update sessions. Um, I think all three of the ones I'm going to talk about were from the update in hospital medicine. Um, so first, there was an um, update about uh, giving oral antibiotics in infective in endocarditis by folks um, it, that was published in New England Journal this past year. Um they looked at a group of folks with left-sided valve disease um, and divided them into uh, PO and IV antibiotics after an initial course of 10 days of IV antibiotics. And it was a non-inferior um, study design. Um, and they found that the PO antibiotics started after that 10-day course were non-inferior to the IV um, it was in a population that were non-IV drug users. It was left-sided heart disease, and there was no MRSA. It was um, other gram-positive uh, endocarditis. Yeah, so we so probably be careful before you just like extrapolate that to people that are IV drug users or have other types of endocarditis. Yeah, for sure. But hopefully. Hopefully more research, hopefully that will open the door to more research on this because that would be a great news for patients and ID doctors everywhere Yeah, <laughs> and general, everybody basically. Yeah, definitely not having to arrange for a pick line mm. um, and maintain it when patients go home is I think a yeah. big um, quality of care. Right, weekly labs and all that, all that stuff. Um, so the next one was a paper in BMJ Open from last year that was about attire um, and physician dress. Um, so this study surveyed patients about what kind of attire they preferred their doctors to be in. And... Um, they had kind of female attire and male attire that ranged from pretty casual to uh, scrubs with white coat, formal with white coat, and then I think a suit option was the most formal of all. Mm. And patients actually, a majority, 53%, said that attire did matter to them and that they preferred the formal attire with the white coat over it. Um, second was the scrubs with white coat over it. So um, this suggests that even though um, attire is obviously context-dependent, patients do have preferences um, that veer more on the formal side than the informal Selfishly, I do not like this study. <laughs> Me neither. As someone who goes to sleep with a tie, I'm pretty okay with it. I wish that the scrubs camp had just like won out across the yeah. board. 
I know. Yeah. Apparently, if you're procedural or um, an EM doctor or a surgeon, um, they're okay with the scrubs. But for outpatient providers in particular, they had a preference for... The I think more I'm going to split the difference. Yeah. Casual with a white coat. That's 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 the best they're going to get for me. I love it. And a mediocre doctor. Did <laughs> 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 they Paul Williams? Yeah. <laughs> Did they sort by age of patient, whether it was the younger folks versus was there any generational component? Um, they didn't mention it in the recap. They did say that there were differences in uh, geographic preference or in geographic distribution of these preferences. Um, though they didn't go into the details of what those differences were, and I would imagine that there were age differences um in terms the of west preference. coast preferred birkenstock yeah. Yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> just alienate large swaths of our audience thank you <laughs> um and then the last one i have for you is actually from 2016 it's from the journal of american osteopathic association um and it's about uh, kidney stones and uh simulators of uh kidney stone passage. Um, So these investigators created, using 3D printing, a simulation of the urinary tract and then took uh, kidney stones from, donated from a patient who had passed them, um, and placed this simulator with the kidney stones in it onto a roller coaster, um, a real roller coaster, um, and tried to figure out where in a roller coaster car uh, kidney stones would pass the most effectively and also whether they would pass. Um, and the, the seat at the back was the most effective for kidney stone passage. Um, about two-thirds, 63.9% of the kidney stones passed in the rear position of the um, roller coaster car, whereas only 16% passed in the front of the car. I'm not sure what the clinical implications of this are, but um, Paul food just, for thought. Paul just yeah. pulled up the image with like, it's it, it, shows, it shows the roller coaster diagram and like the, so the person seated in there. Literally, figure three is just a drawing of a roller coaster with like it's a schematic of the seats. It is. This is my new favorite paper of all time. So great research happening. <laughs> yeah, there is a 2015 urology study. It, I think it's in the journal Urology, and it was sexual intercourse for passage of of kidney stones. And uh, turns out, uh, I think it was three times a week or something like that. Sexual yep. intercourse worked. And the follow-up question that trainees always ask me is, did they test for if masturbation works? And I, I, they did not. It was, I guess they had partners that they were having intercourse with. But, you know, if anyone has a kidney stone and uh, look that article up and, you know, yeah. yeah. Options, roller coasters. Options, sex, yeah, roller sure. coasters, sexual intercourse, lots of good options out there. <laughs> I just, I have to mention, I'll play the role of steward, that the acknowledgement in the paper is, we thank Walt Disney World Resort's Magic Kingdom theme park for allowing us to conduct this research in the park's premises. <laughs> just just a magical paper all the way around. Yeah, they did throw up a picture of Disney World <laughs> during the presentations. All right. we, we have more, get sued. More to get through. Carolyn, what's your, what, what's your favorite pearls from the day? I think all of my favorite pearls were from the hospital medicine update. Spoiler alert, I am a hospitalist. Uh, so I think one one study that I highlighted really tried to ask that question in hospital-acquired pneumonia uh, that you know we generally treat with pretty broad spectrum to cover for MRSA and pseudomonas. When can we de-escalate if cultures are negative, right? They're pretty sick. Uh, so the study actually looked at this. It was a single center retrospective study. Um, all these patients did have sputum cultures. 
And they found that if you're a culture negative at four days and you stopped the vancomycin, it actually had lower, uh, you had lower uh, durations of length of stay, lower rates of AKI, and no difference in mortality, which is huge. So I feel pretty good now that if a patient is undergoing sort of MRSA, I feel good about stopping that vancomycin because I sort of hate treating for both uh, just empirically for a full course. So I think that was big and and uh, will make me much more less much less anxious the next time I do that mm-hmm. on a patient. And then the second thing I thought was really interesting was they did a study that looked at uh, stigmatizing notes. Again, sort of on the theme on the conference that words are really important. So they took notes, uh, somewhat stigmatizing la- language like you know substance abuse, uh, and had notes that were more neutrally worded. And what they found is that providers who had read the stigmatizing notes actually had uh, more negative attitudes towards the patient, and they actually received less aggressive pain management. So that was really, really good to know and sort of like reinforce with my trainees, like be careful what you write in the note, be careful what you write in the HPI. And then the last thing I was- I bet you that extends, uh, to editorialize this, I bet you that extends to provider sign out as well. Like if you're talking to another clinician, that that happens all the time. Some the notes that they included in the study were so there's so much fidelity that it kind of hurt. Like you're reading like that patient lying in bed with his girlfriend with his shoes on. Like there's no reason to include any of that detail, but like it just it implies a certain something, and then the care is worse. And we've all seen stuff like that written in charts. So the patient looked comfortable, but was asking for pain medications. Just even sort of throwaway lines like that actually have real impact on the patient's care. So it was it's a nicely designed study. And last uh, but not least, a plug, I think patient safety is super important. And there was a study that looked at uh, the amount of medication errors, sort of when we transfer patients from the ICU to the general medicine floor. And they saw that there are 53% of these transfers had medication errors. And uh, in terms of locations where they actually had to put in separate transfer orders, so all your orders cancel, and you have to make the decision consciously one by one, that's folks with those sort of protocols in place had fewer medication errors, which I think is is great. And it's good to remember that even when we do these things, they f- do feel cumbersome, but it's like the right thing to do for patient care at the end of the day. Up next, we might have, uh, is this? is this? So there's one more, and I, I might even throw it to the great Justin Burke as our med specialist. Uh, the other study from the, the hospital updates, did you, the Lego ingestion one? Do you have oh. knowledge of this one or should we talk about this? No, I don't have a lot of knowledge, but it's um, in general, but uh, for the letter sure. study either. I meant um, personal knowledge, not about right. the actual study. Uh, it is uh, making the rounds on the pediatric water cooler. Uh, yeah, it's the, the and it, I think it, it got a lot of traction on Twitter in part because the title is so amazing too. So it starts with everything is awesome. And it actually, it's about <laughs> Lego head ingestion. So it's it's these six pediatricians, God bless them, each ate a Lego head. And then had to sort through their own stool to determine whether or not they'd actually passed it. And they were sort of measuring the, the time that it actually took to pass. The most compelling part was that only five of the six of them found it. Um, <laughs> um, so I didn't do any follow-up to find out what happened to that sixth person. Presumably they're okay. But it was just – it's a their, their dedication to medicine and their patients I thought was spectacular. I'm not sure how else I would use that information, but I thought it was particularly germane to your practice. So I, I'm going to use it when I, when I go back to practice. One of the comments that was made in the room where you were discussing it before is like the the anatomy of an adult is a different size, so that the Lego head might get stopped up in different places, right? Like, absolutely. I don't think this has any clinical, uh, yeah, significance in this. So why did this get published? I'm blaming you. Why did this get? No, I like it. I <laughs> Slow like it. Slow news day in the pediatrics world. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> 
this sounds like uh, it sounds like the BMJ around Christmas time. They always publish those like kind of right. they publish the man flu study yeah. and you know or the or the editorial about man flu and stuff like that. Yeah, not the rigorous times we expect like kidney stones and roller coasters and right. fake ureters. <laughs> A lot of really great stuff for our audience today. <laughs> All right, Justin, what what uh, what did you have for us today? And uh, did is is Shreya here? I, well, Shreya is here. Great, Shreya is so here. I think we. Um, I think we were we can, calling you. We can do you, the shot of Shrabies. Yeah, I think we were calling you. <laughs> we're, due for, we're due for a Shrabies shot. That's right. Hey, um, hey. how are you? Um, I, I'm doing so well. It's great to see I you. I have no idea what you're going to do. We talk don't really about. have. Uh, we can just kind of. How was your day? It was great. Amazing. I feel uh, really inspired. Uh, you are always inspiring. Seeing you no. is inspiring. <laughs> I also feel inspired. It's coming off to me. Uh, it was a great day. I feel like. Do you want to give? Oh, why don't Why don't you take uh, Nora's mic since it's closest? There's a little bit of slack on that. So you, I do like being very close to Justin. It's really um, nice. Still stand next to him. We <laughs> just want you mic. I don't know if my deodorant's worn off it's, or not. We're good. Um, we're good. It's okay though. Tell me about what you learned today. Yeah. Thanks so much for asking. Uh, there are some great <laughs> pearls from the primary care updates, um, and I'm just going to do them kind of like quick rapid fire. All right. Does that work for you? Is that okay? Yeah. Great. So pearl number one. Uh, canaflotacin, one of the SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, shown to reduce uh, composite end-stage renal disease, AKI, renal and cardiovascular death. This was the Credence trial, which, uh, uh, as you may have heard, uh, yeah, Shreya, on NFJC, NFJC podcast, yeah. podcast right? <laughs> yes, Dr. Joel Toff. Um, so this is a follow-up from the Imperred Canvas trial that basically shows that uh, this SGLT2 inhibitors um, can have a lot of clinical benefit in these patients with CKD and diabetes. The couple things that were of interest, uh, they excluded patients that had a GFR of less than 30 and anyone that had microalbuminuria less than 300. Um, but they didn't really talk about one thing. I, I don't know if you guys have started doing this, but for a lot of our patients, when they have diabetes, we check for microalbuminuria. If they do have some proteinuria or microalbuminuria, we'll start lisinopril or an ACE inhibitor, even if their blood pressure is okay, with the idea that it decreases further proteinuria, Renal right? Regression, yeah. Yeah. Um, but this has pretty significant clinical outcomes. And I wonder if, I don't know if Dr. Toff had mentioned this, but if this is going to be the new first-line treatment for yeah. proteinuria in diabetics. Right. Yeah, we'd have to look at it more specifically, but I think a lot of patients were on both ACE inhibitors and, in and SGLT2s. I think so. Maybe so. that's the how to reconcile it. Um, what else you got for me? Great. Okay, thank you. Uh, so next, the uh, impact trial. So second pearl is that uh, in patients with COPD and multiple exacerbations, triple therapy with a, a LAMA, LAMA, LABA, and inhaled corticosteroid is greater than double therapy, meaning just... Um, a LAMA and ICS or LABA and ICS. I'm sorry, greater compared to uh, LABA and ICS and LAMA and LABA. Need and what to be was shown the, the endpoint they were looking at? Yeah. The endpoint was, Better. great question, Matt. Uh, so it was a 15% reduction in acute exacerbation of uh, COPD. So the triple therapy reduced acute exacerbations of COPD by 15%. It improved quality of life and did have some adverse effect in that there was some increase in pneumonia, which has been well established in the inhaled corticosteroid group. Interestingly, and they didn't dive into this too much, but they talked about how the all-cause mortality was actually lower in both steroid groups, meaning the LABA, ICS, and um, the triple therapy, which would be one of the first kind of COPD treatments to really have a mortality benefit mm -hmm. other than smoking cessation and oxygen, oxygen yeah. right? Yeah. So. I don't know. I, you know, food for thought. Not <laughs> okay. food for thought. Really, 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 thanks. 
<laughs> What's next on the list? Amazing. So the next trial, um, we've talked about a lot, the ASIN trial in diabetes, basically showing that there's not a significant uh, benefit over the risk in aspirin in diabetics. The number needed to treat is 91 to avoid one vascular event. The number needed to harm is 119 to have um, to cause one major bleed. So the idea is that it's basically kind of a wash. Um, and this is for primary prevention. People have never had a heart attack or stroke. Absolutely, yes. So primary prevention specifically. The two things that we had talked about this in the aspirin episode previously, but the two things that I kind of took away, one, I didn't realize, but the the population was 97% white. A lot of um, 97% white. So it's uh, tough to say that, that totally extrapolates to an entire population. And then the other pearl that they talked about was that the risk of bleeding uh, also increased as your cardiovascular re- risk increased. So this idea of weighing the risks and benefits where maybe someone would benefit a lot if they had a very high ASCVD score, um, this has shown that that's probably not the case and that those patients also have a higher GI bleeding risk. I wonder if they're just in general... You know, in bed, in worse shape in general. Yeah. So they're just more likely to bleed because of that. Their just overall wellness is, is worse. Yeah. All right. How many more points? We have uh, three more points. All right. Three more quick points. And then a, a couple other updates. It'll be fine. We're going to go quick. <laughs> <laughs> next, next pearl, um, adding clopidogrel to aspirin after a stroke or TIA um, can reduce recurrent events. This was the point trial. This is going to be talked about in the upcoming stroke TIA episode. That's right. Um, coming up in the next... Uh, month, month or two so. <laughs> months. It'll probably air by early July. Yeah, amazing. We're teasing ahead of time. Uh, number needed to treat was twenty-one to redu- uh, nope. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was interestingly uh, no increase in side effect of hemorrhage in the first seven days, but significant after that first week there was significant hemorrhage, um, and there was no uh, fewer ischemic events. Um, later on, but there was improvement in the first week. So this kind of hypothesizes that maybe the ideal treatment would be dual antiplatelet therapy for about seven days to maximize the benefit, reduce the risk. And one of the, one of the scary parts, just implementing this in your own practice, is they're giving a 600 mi- uh, milligram loading dose of Plavix, which is or, or Copidogrel. So just think about that. You might, uh, yeah, that's that's yeah. not something I've routinely done. Usually, a cardiologist or I guess a neurologist is making that decision. I think something, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think the other thing that they mentioned is that the aspirin dose was not pre-specified. So you were just allowed yeah. to kind of pick your dose of aspirin along with your Plavix loading and go with God. 50 to luck. 325, yeah. pretty big range. 50 to 350, I think, which I think that's right. a dose I... Yeah. Last two quick trials. The Reducit trial, looking at isopentethyl um, or uh, omega-3 fatty acids, essentially, did have a decrease in uh, cardiovascular disease, a number needed to treat of 21 to reduce composite events, also in a predominantly white population, 90%. And finally, that tamsulosin, this was in a Meltzer et al. JAMA IM article, it was a tamsulosin for stone passage and showed that there was not any statistically significant passage of kidney stones with tamsulosin. Um, of note, in the study, most stones were very small, under 5 millimeters, and it might be underpowered for a 5 to 9 millimeter stone, which other studies suggest that maybe that's the ideal tamsulosin effect. But until then, um, this kind of suggests not tamsulosin, and so we'll have to revert back to roller and sexual intercourse. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> we need to do a... Set them up and mind the show. Amazing. Awesome. Um, any more, Justin? Two quick final things. Uh, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> no, you got you got so much good stuff. I'm really proud of you, by the way. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, you're, you make me oh really happy. This is good. 
this is, uh, I'll end on a depressing note. Um, there was a oh, study great. that showed uh, emotional distress as a resident. So if you have some emotional distress as a resident, which, which can happen. Preach. Uh, it persists into your individual practice uh, 10 years later and does have an association with burnout in practice. Interesting. So... Uh, so watch out for that. Take yeah. care of yourself oh. in residency. All the more and, uh, take care of your residents. All, all the you know all the all the burnout literature. Sometimes I I like I want to go in and, and look at it and be like, how are, were they actually measuring that? Yeah. And is that the same kind of what I? Because I'm like, what are, what implications does that have for me? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, hmm, how does that? How do I uh, extrapolate that to? I don't know. But uh, but yeah, we got to do something about it. So in, in thinking about your the, your last study on, on the trainees and in uh, particularly for Nora and Justin selecting your pearls, I'm curious, you know, as a medical educator and sort of seeing your engagement in this as a beautiful um, display of self-directed learning, how did you select your pearls? Was it something that was really new or unknown to you? Was it something that you think I can immediately go back and put this into practice in the clinic or on the wards? What was it about it that that it struck you as this is a pearl that I want to share? So I think for a lot of the studies, it was looking at practices that we tend to do and having a better understanding of the evidence. So absolutely have seen tamsulosin given for kidney stones. Absolutely have seen and started aspirin for primary prophylaxis. Um, yeah, preventive prophylaxis, yeah. Um, interested in, again, starting lisinopril, uh, maybe there's other medications that would be better for patients with diabetes. So I think looking at practices that I've seen and wondering if this is something better. To be perfectly honest, I think any resident and medical student is always really excited to find evidence that can demonstrate superiority over what you've been taught and be like, oh, look at me, I'm smart. Like, this is the new <laughs> thing. Like, I'm the younger generation. I think like maybe at least subconsciously. Um, so is it more exciting to get proof that what you're doing is right or proof that what you're doing is wrong? I think as a learner, I think proof that what you're doing is wrong. I and it's not overwhelming to you. It's not like, ah, oh, but it's exciting. I think it's exciting. I think it's, it's also humbling it's and it also uh, maybe gives you that sense where, you know, I don't want to say that your decisions are less important because the evidence in 10 years might be different. So maybe what you're doing isn't wrong. It's just avant-garde and you're ahead of the game. Um, <laughs> But I think those have been the, the ones that I think are the most interesting, that are clinically practical, that are pearls, and that can be taken to a clinical encounter. And it sounds like it piques your curiosity as well. Absolutely. Like the, the sort of humility in the, there could be more that I could or should be doing. Absolutely. That's great. Nora? Yeah, I completely agree. I would say the other thing that kind of directed me towards a couple of these was having rem remembering having had time on the wards in the last couple of years when I've actually wondered about these things. So I wondered about the kind of PO versus IV antibiotics when I was on a cardiology service and was um, figuring out what the best treatment was for a patient with endocarditis. Similarly with the attire um, question, it's something that I think is looped in constantly in professionalism discussions, especially for women often. Um, and so um, I had wondered whether patients actually cared about how we dress. Um, and so this this was just kind of an interesting answer to that question and um, provided some resolution. And then the kidney stones, I just thought was 
fantastic. <laughs> um, study about yeah. yeah, exactly. How often do you see a study about roller coasters? Um, so kind of a mix of interesting and actually related to something I had wondered about before. So Shreya, did you have any any yeah. final things? I mean, I I spent words? I spent yeah no I I want to end on an inspirational note because I think that's a special thing about S Gym is that you have all these innovators that come together who are thinking about how can we look at these problems and make change and so I spent a, a, a majority of my time actually today at the poster sessions presenting and cheering other people on and I just wanted to give a shout out to to one group being being I think pe- what someone called me a champion of women in medicine which I was like. Thank you, but I think that like there's so many champions, and we need as many uh, champions as possible. But um, I just wanted to give a shout out to University of Michigan. Um, there was a, a physician I met by the name of uh, Dr. Jennifer Lucella. Um, she and her residents, and I believe someone also at Ohio, worked with them to do um, a needs assessment of their female residents, and um, did a pretty uh, robust curriculum around what they uh, found that the residents wanted, which was. Um, uh, skills on leadership, negotiation, um, and uh, giving pitches to themselves. And um, for, it was a, a very well-received, successful um, curriculum that really helped the residents. And um, I just, listening to her, I'm probably like doing a due diligence talking about it, but listening to her, I just felt was like, wow, these female residents are graduating, we're entering the workforce more empowered. And I was just really happy to see that out there. And I'm curious to hear what other institutions are doing. I think Abby is doing something at Cleveland Clinic. And I don't know if she's already mentioned that. And maybe I should give her the space to mention it too. Thank you. I have not yet mentioned it. We just got a AIM Innovations grant to do a very similar project to empower women trainees to learn a lot of these skills sooner. I think that we wait too late. And often it's at these conferences when someone's already into the workforce that we're then teaching them how to negotiate or find their voice or advocate for themselves. And how can we do this just so much sooner? Uh, residency may be too late as well, but that's my space and sphere. And so exactly. we're really excited. And to- it was such an interesting conversation to talk to her because she went back and they are their team went back and forth is, do we give this curriculum to both the female residents and the male residents that the male residents are also empowered of these particular issues that um, their female colleagues might be facing? And actually, they decided to do it only with the female residents. To, and they, the female residents really appreciated that time and space. Um, but I'm sure different institutions might be doing it other other ways. So those are like interesting things that I, as a young budding researcher and innovator, quote unquote, I was like, hmm, what's the best way to do this? And uh, maybe there's no right way, but um, it's exciting to see different different people come out with different uh, thoughts on that. Absolutely. And I think that's where the power of the and comes in, as opposed to the tyranny of the or, that there really are opportunities to have men and women together where I think men can have those aha moments and reflections of not only their own learning, but how they may be doing things or saying things in, in both directions that may not realize their impact. And then there's always the power of the safe space when you have the women alone to really tell their stories and build that community. And so I think the right answer is an and. Yes. It's not one or the other. Absolutely. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. All right. Good stuff. It looks like we forgot to record an outro while at SGIM, so I am just going to record it now by myself. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast or get on our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. 
We are committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your input. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes. It really does help us. You can send us feedback to the curbsiders at gmail.com. Or you can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. I'd like to thank all of our writers and producers for this episode. Shreya Trevetti, Justin Burke, Carolyn Chan, Nora Toronto, and of course the great Dr. Paul Williams, our guest Abby Spencer. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, and I guess I'm signing off by myself. Uh, Good night, Paul, wherever you are. <laughs>